This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back for another wonderful Thursday afternoon class. We are going to be suspending our studies of the Parsha and focusing more intently on the Haggadah in honor of the upcoming holiday of Pesach. I want to thank you all for being here. Thank you very much for being on. I want to thank the amazing staff at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit. And I want to thank the amazing people, the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. It's amazing, and it's got hundreds of thousands of hours of incredible Torah content that you can download, that you can stream, that you can listen to, and fill your cerebrum with great Torah knowledge. Let's get down to Binit, because it's, Pesach is coming, and we've got, we've got to get down. We've got, we've got a lot of stuff to do. So, there's a story about a Jewish man who lived in the 1600s. And he lived in England, and he was very involved in uh, civic affairs in, in London. He was involved in, he helped uh, England finance all kinds of projects, public works projects. And eventually it was determined that he was going to be given a knighthood. He was going to be benighted by the Queen of England. So usually the Queen of England, you know, she doesn't have time to knight people every day. Huh? Knight people every day. She doesn't have time to knight people every day, so they wait until there's a, a, a sizable amount of people, a critical mass... And then there's a knighting ceremony, and maybe ten people become uh, knights. They get the honorific of being a knight, be called a lord, a lady, whatever it may be. And he goes down there, and there's a room, and there's a protocol officer from the court, sorry, from the from the uh, palace, and the protocol officer explains to um, all the people who are being knighted what the process is. The process is, there's a little, like, a cushion. You kneel one foot down on the cushion in front of the queen. Then uh, the you will say a statement in Latin, you know, amino, domine, homine, whatever it is, and then she's going to lightly tap you on both shoulders with a sword, and then you are a knight of England. So this guy is a Jewish guy, and he's super excited, and it's, you know, he's standing there, and then they, they, they're in the room, and they finally go into the throne room, they're all lined up, and people go, the first person, you know, Francis Drake, and he becomes Sir Francis Drake, and so on and so forth. And the next guy is William Bacon, he becomes Sir William Bacon, he gets benighted. And finally, it's time for Yankel Goldstein, and he gets down on one knee, which you're allowed to, and two knees would be a problem. He gets down on one knee with the cushion right in front of the queen, and right when he's about to say his Latin phrase, he has a total brain freeze. He can't remember the amine, domine, hominé, whatever, victus, sanctus. You know, he, he can't remember the, the phrase in Latin. He don't speak no Latin. So he, he's frozen up, and there's like a, a very noticeable pause, and there's a quiet, grows across the room. And finally, he's just so nervous. He just blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind. And he's like, And the queen has no idea what, she's, what, this, what this guy is saying. So the queen turns to the uh, aides that she has next to her, and she says, why is this knight different than all the other knights? Ba-dum-bum. Okay. Manish Danalai is in the cause. Okay. There we go. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Jokes are better said in person when you can hear the laughter of others. Um, with Zoom, it's kind of like a quiet, empty room. But boom, why is this knight different than all the other knights? Manish Danalai, let me call it those. Okay. So what exactly is it that makes the Seder night so different than all the other nights? We're going to be discussing that over the next couple of weeks. And I want to first, we're going to talk about the Seder, why the Seder, why 15 steps, what do they mean? Each one of them hopefully we'll be able to get through maybe, or maybe we'll get through a few of them. Um, before we do that though, I want to talk about an amazing story that's told over in a book called Touched by a Seder 
by Rabbi Spiro, by Rabbi Yechiel Spiro. And he writes the following story on page 38, I believe. He writes that there was a great, there was a great Hasidic master, the base Aaron, right? Rabbi Aaron of Karlin. He was the head of the Karlin Hasidim. And it was the night of Pesach, and all the Hasidim, they're all dressed in their beautiful yamtiv garb, and they all go to Shul. And at the end of Shul, they hear Reb Aaron of Karliner saying, Oy, oy, if only we could all learn from the great and the holy Shabsi. If only we could all learn from the great and holy Shabsi. Shabsi, oh, Shabsi. So the Hasidim hear this, they're like, wow, we didn't know that Shabsi was the great and the holy. Shabsi is the woodcutter. You know, he lives in the corner of town. He lives out a little, a little bit in the woods. This way his commute is shorter, right? If you're a woodcutter and you live in the forest outside of town, you've got a very, very small commute. There's no traffic usually, right? So he lives out in the woods, and uh, no one really knew him to be a, a great Sadiq. No one knew him to be a, a very, very holy man. So a few of the Hasidim, they say, he must be one of the Lamed Vav Tzadikim. He must be one of the 36 hidden Tzadikim. You know what I'm saying? The problem with hidden Tzadikim is that every year they get the new lapel pin. You know, there's a special lapel pin for the 36 hidden Tzadikim. But they never wear it because they're supposed to be hidden. So it's like a catch-22. How am I supposed to know you're part of the 36 hidden Tzadikim? So the, the Hasidim decide, a few of them decide that we are going to follow Shopsi home and we're going to see maybe he's one of the 36 hidden tzaddikim, maybe Eliyoha Navi comes and spends the whole Seder by him instead of just coming for the fifth cup, maybe we're going to see Malachim sitting at, at, at his feet during the, the Haggadah. It's going to be the most amazing experience. The holy, holy Rav Shabzi must be one of the 36 hidden tzaddikim. So at a distance, they trail behind Shabzi as he trudges off after davening to his little hut in the, in, in the forest. And they can hear some noise in the house. There's some like a bang and a noise and whatever. And they keep, they're so curious. What's that noise? Is that the noise of the angels crashing when they come down to his Seder from heaven? Finally, they creep up to the window and they look inside. They can't believe their eyes. The table isn't set at all, right? The kids are running around the house, right? Unbelievable. And there is Shopsy slowly setting up the table. He sets up the table, puts out a pretty meager... Uh, Seder, he goes into the, the bedroom in those days, if you're lucky, you had one separate room, usually behind the curtain or whatever. His wife comes out a little bit long later, they sit down, they start their Seder, nothing going on, no angels, no sparks, no Elijah in, in the flesh. Finally, they got to go home to their, to, their, to their Seders, they go home, and they come back the next day, they decide, we're just going to ask him, we're just going to ask him in Shul, what, what happened over there? What'd you... What was going on? What was going on? So the next day they come over to Nasser Shul and they say to him, we were right by the Rebbe, the Holy Rebbe, Yerbaran of Kalin, and he was saying, oh, if only we could learn from the great and holy Shabsi. So we got to be honest, we, we, we followed you home and we kind of, we saw you setting up and we didn't see any, we didn't see any great and holy Shabsi. Now, no offense, you're an amazing person. We'll try to buy our wood exclusively from you going forward if you're really the holy Shabsi. But, like, what's going on? So listen to this. This is what he says. It has been a stressful time in the house. 
Before Pesach, people want to stock up on a lot of wood. They don't want to have to be going and finding the woodcutter in the middle of Pesach. So I'm working overtime. My wife's got to prepare everything for the meal, everything for the Seder. The kids are all home from school. It's been it's been very, very, very hectic in the woodcutting shopsy in, in, in the Mr. and Mrs. Shopsy Woodcutter's house. Things have been difficult. And finally, though, we pull it all together as we always manage to do right before right before Shoal, I'm about to go leave for Shoal. When as we're the, the, the table is set. We've got the white tablecloth, right? And my wife puts out, I have a nice kiddush cup that I carved out of wood, a beautiful, beautiful, big kiddush cup. And it was filled with wine. And the table was gleaming. And my wife, as she was a little bit absent-minded, looking at one of the kids who was fighting with another kid, she bangs into the table and the kiddush cup fell on the white tablecloth and turned the whole thing into the purple tablecloth, or at least splotches of it. And she, it was just too much. It was just too much. The stress, the pain, the difficulty, the challenge, the financial challenge associated with Pesach, the physical challenges associated with Pesach, me barely being here because I'm working so much. It was just too much. And she grabbed the white and purple tablecloth and she ripped it off and everything came crashing down on the floor. And she starts yelling at me, how come you always put out your tablecloth over there with, with the wine? What's, what's wrong with you? She was just so angry, so hurt, so stressed out. And I just said to her, I'm so sorry. You're right. It's my fault. It's never going to happen again. Let me... Let me clean this up. I'm going to go to Shaw. I'll come back. I'll take care of it. Why don't you take a nap? And indeed, my wife just stormed off to her room. I came home from Shoal. The table wasn't set. Everyone wants to be able to come home from Shoal on a Pesach night and the table is set regally. The table wasn't set. Most of our dishes were broken because when she ripped off the tablecloth, all the dishes fell on the floor. I put out what I could and we had a Seder. But I'll tell you the one thing I didn't do. I don't think I'm very holy. I don't think I'm very great. I don't know what Rivara and Carlina was talking about. But the one thing I didn't do is I didn't get angry yesterday. That I would not allow. The Seder night is the most important night of the Jewish calendar. Now notice that I said night. Kabbalistically, it's really not a night, it's a day, but okay. It's the most important night of the Jewish calendar. It's the most important teaching opportunity. It has the power to imbue us with faith and inspiration that lasts for a year, for the entire life. This is the what we call the Layla, the Mehemnusa, the night of faith. It's what imbues our children with the knowledge of who we are and where we come from and what we're all about. It's what makes them feel proud to be a Jew. But the one person who does not like the Seder night is the Satan. Because he sees how powerful a Seder night done right could be. He knows how much faith a Seder can give us. How much strength? If we do the Seder night properly, we could have such belief and strength in God's providence, in God's miracles, in God's choosing of us over all the nations, that we could go through unbelievable amounts of pain and suffering and still stay strong. The Yetzirah does not want us to have a great Seder. So what does he do? He makes it a stressful environment. First of all, the preparations are often stressful. But then the Seder comes and you've got all kinds of people sitting around the table. 
You've got Uncle Barry, the lifelong bachelor who always makes racy jokes that makes everybody else uncomfortable. You've got Aunt Estelle, who no matter what, every year finds a way to tell you that your, your, your matzo balls are not as good as... as when we used to go to Debbie's house for the Seder, she made, they were much more fluffy. You know, you got to put in the seltzer. You got to put the seltzer in the, in, in the matzo ball mix. Otherwise, it's just, I, I got to say, it, it, you, the food is good. It's just not as good as when we used to be by Debbie's. Why can't you put seltzer? Why can't you put seltzer in the matzo balls? <laughs> She's going to be there at the Seder too. And then you're going to have that ADHD kid who's throwing the toy frogs off the ceiling and the roof and it comes crashing down and breaks the glass. There's going to be stress at your Seder. There's going to be a lot of people around. Some people who get along well. Some people don't get along so well. Some people are a little bit uncomfortable around each other. And all the Yetzirah wants to do is knock you off your game. I saw, I'm trying to remember which Sefer I saw it in. But he was talking about how the Yetzirah, he knows when we have enormous power and he tries to fight us. He also talked about this. He said there's a specific, he's like the Yetzirah goes into overdrive before Shabbos, trying you to get you to lose your cool. Think about what's going on every week before Shabbos. The Shabbos prep, right? Shabbos is getting ready. You've got to take a shower. He's got to get dressed. This kid, the room isn't clean. The table wasn't set, or it was set, but they put out the wrong dishes. It was the right dishes, but they put out the wrong cups. There's just so much going on. The Yetzirah knows Shabbos is so powerful, so he tries to get you right before Shabbos. The Yetzirah knows the Pesach Seder is so powerful, he's going to try to get you to lose your cool at the Pesach Seder. How come they always put me next to Chaim? Chaim is, is, is loud and he runs through the Haggadah. I like to go slowly through the Haggadah. How come they put me next to Chaim? They know that I don't want to be next to him. They know that I, he and I don't see eye to eye on how to do the Haggadah. Why do they put me next to Chaim again? And oh my gosh, I, I, I can't believe it. Maki's wearing the same dress that I wore. She knew. I, she, I, I went and bought it. I showed her my new Yemtim dress. And she got the same thing. She's wearing it to the Seder too. How insensitive of her. And yes, a Seder alone is also very difficult. Right? Somebody here typed in, a Seder alone is very, very difficult. That's another whole Nisayon. Since COVID happened, Right? There are many people whose satyrs have much, much smaller and don't have the ring and the noise and the fanfare of their previous satyrs. And that's a whole other level. To be able to come to a place of saying, Hashem, I'm going to have the satyr with you. You're the one who came out on the night of Mitzrayim and you saved us. Anivalo Malach, Anivalo Saraf. God says, I saved you. In the Haggadah we read, Hashem says, I saved you. I didn't send a Malach. I didn't send a Saraf. I didn't send an angel. I didn't send the Shaliach. I myself came. So Hashem, me and you are going to sit down together to a Seder. I know many people who are going to have the Seder. It's going to be, unfortunately, it's going to be a Seder of just, you know, just the two of them. One is immunocompromised, right? Or whatever it is. And there's, you, you can't go out. You can't be exposed. So that is a whole nother, a whole nother level. So the, the bottom line is the Yetzirah knows how powerful. The Yetzirah is very clued in to the power of the day. And he's going to try to get you off your game. So the very most important thing is, number one, do not allow yourself to get upset. Just be supremely happy at the Seder. Supremely happy at the Seder. 
whether it's because people are trying to, there are things that are getting you upset, or whether it's because of the fact that you're not with the people that you wish you could be with. The key is to be supremely happy by the Seder, and often that takes work beforehand. It takes hachana, it takes preparation. Sitting down before the Seder with your wife, with your children, and talking about what, what stresses usually are there at the, at the Seder. Maybe there's the stress that one kid keeps trying to cannibalize all the conversation. And, and he's so happy, he's so excited, he has a Dvar Torah, but, but he has a Dvar Torah about everything. We have a very famous story in our, in our, in our family. This is a true story. This actually happened in the year of the COVID number one. <laughs> so it was, it was April of 2020, right? So our family, once we found out that, that you know, COVID was a thing, we basically we, we, we secluded ourselves for three weeks, literally, because we wanted to go away for Pesach. So we didn't go shopping for groceries. Hi, Safran, who's on this call. He used to bring us our groceries, Baruch Hashem. We took walks around the block, and we did, we, we did stuff as a family. But we literally did not, we isolated ourselves because we wanted to go away for Pesach, and we did not want to pose a threat to the people we were going away, the community, whatever it was. So we literally, like, we were in serious lockdown before Pesach, but we went away. So we were with, we were with another family. And one of the family's sons, he had a whole ton of Dvar Torahs, he had a Haggadah that he was reading out of, and it was exciting, it was a smaller experience, it was just our family and one other family, and he kept saying Dvar Torahs, and he was like reading ahead and saying Dvar Torahs. Anyway, so I, had, I, I shared an idea, okay, I shared a Dvar Torah, and then as soon as I finished, this other young man, who's like, a, yeah, he, says, he says, hold on, hold on, you know, Uncle Laban, can I, can I say something now? I say, sure, 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 you know, say something. He literally says the exact Dvar Torah that I had just finished saying. <laughs> he was so busy preparing and reading up what he wanted to say next, because he had this new Haggadah and it had all kinds of Dvar Torahs in it. So he was so busy preparing his next Dvar Torah that he wasn't listening to what was being said at all, and he literally launches into the exact same Dvar Torah that I had just finished saying. It was hilarious. Anyway, a lot of things that can go wrong at a Seder. Our job is to be supremely happy. So we got to prepare ahead of time. We talk, if, if we're going with somebody, and we know there's certain things that usually go wrong, we know there's certain break, break points, we know there's certain issues, deal with them ahead of time. Too much spilling of the grape juice, use a cup that has a flatter bottom. Don't use a stemmed cup. You know, the, there's different things you got to figure out what you want to do, or put a bigger bowl underneath the cups. There's, there's little things that you can do just to make sure that those things are not in place. And your job at the Seder night is to be supremely happy, because that is the night of our cheros. That is the night of our freedom. That's the night when the Jews, in the original story, there was supreme happiness. And there may have been a little thing here and there that irked them, but that was the night they knew they were getting out. That was the night that there was going to be the final act. Remember, the Jews, the, the initial Pesach Seder was in Mitzrayim, the night of Makas Bechoros, the night of the death of the firstborn, when they were sitting down with their blood on the doorpost and sitting down to eat their first ever Seder. Totally joyful in the fact that they knew with confidence that that night Hashem was going to perform the final miracles and they would be driven out of Mitzrayim and be set free forever and ever. Nothing that, so, so a kid drops some grape juice. Big deal. We're getting free from ever after hundreds of years of slavery. So what if a kid broke a glass? Big deal. We're getting free forever from all of our slavery. So as, soon as, we, as long as we have that in mind, that importance, that at the Seder, we just got to be supremely happy. That's the most important thing. Your kids are going to remember these seders forever. If they remember the seders, and all they remember is that daddy was always telling this one to stop, stop fidgeting, and this one to, to you know, you're, you're pouring too much grape juice. No you, no, you can't have any more grape juice. If that's how they remember the seder, 
That would be very sad, but if they remember that at the Seder, everyone was beaming and gleaming. Mom, Dad, Bubby, Zadie, cousins, everyone was just beaming and gleaming. They'll have that incredible just joy and, and, and beautiful memories of Seders for the rest of their lives. Let's look at the first halacha in the Jewish code of law about the Seder. The first halacha, the Jewish code of law, in the Arachayim, it's, um, it's, 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 it's tough, iron and bays. Chapter 472, the first halacha, Yiyeh Shulchano Aruch Mi Ba'od Yom. Your table should be set from before the evening. Kedei Lecho Miyad so you should be able to eat right away as soon as it gets dark. Ba'afim who Beis Medrash, even if he's in Shul learning or davening, Yakum, he should get up and leave the Beis Medrash. Mitzvah because it's a mitzvah to eat and to quickly get to the meal. Bishvil Hatinokis Shalo Yishanu, so the children should not fall asleep. So first of all, I like how he starts off, You've got to have it prepared. He's saying the same kind of concept. The Pesach Seder, you can't rush into a Pesach Seder. You've got to make sure. <clears throat> that the table is set. You've got to make sure that everything's in place. Uh, there's a family over here in Detroit. I just saw them. Their Pesach Seder was usually set two weeks in advance. And they would cover it over, all the dishes, all the silver, all the crystal. And they would cover up that entire table with one more you know, tablecloth so it shouldn't get dusty. But literally, their entire Pesach Seder was set two weeks in advance. This year they said they're going to Florida, so they don't have to set it two weeks in advance. But it's an amazing thing. The idea, this same family, by the way, Tavo Aleh and Bracha, much blessing should come upon them. My daughter went to spend Shabbos, we were out of town or whatever, so one of my daughters spent Shabbos by this family. Two hours before Shabbos, everything is done. The entire house is perfectly clean. The entire table is perfectly set. The kids are all washed, bathed, ready for Shabbos. And then they spend the two hours before Shabbos. They're just, they're reading, they're reading you know, some Jewish magazines or maybe a Safer, whatever it is, for two hours before Shabbos. They're all already 100% ready. It's amazing. So make sure your table is set. And as we just spoke about today, not just that your table is set, but that your mind frame is set. That your mind that you, that you have the right intent. You know what your night is going to look like. You've pre-gamed it. You've talked to your people about what it's going to look like. You've set the right rules for how many Dvar Torahs each kid can say so that we don't just have one kid cannibalizing the whole Seder. We have everything set up. We have it set up for success and then come home from Shul right away. You're saying, good Shabbos, good Yomtev to everybody. The Rav just spoke beautifully. You want to ask him a question about his speech. That's not the night for doing that. It's not the night to stay in synagogue and debate theological issues or polemics. That's not what it's about. There's very few biblical mitzvot that we're going to celebrate at the Seder. There's many rabbinical mitzvot. many mitzvot do banan. But there's very few mitzvot do araisa. One mitzvot do araisa that's unequivocally a mitzvot do araisa is... And you shall tell to your child on that day, saying, Because of this, the Lord did for me when I went out of Egypt. That's a Pasuk in Shmos, Yud Gimel, Ches, Exodus 13, 8. And you shall tell it over to your child on that day, saying, That is the mitzvah sayom. That is the mitzvah of the day. That is the mitzvah of Sipur Yetzirah Mitzrayim, of telling over the story of the Exodus. And that is a mitzvah d'oraisa. So if that's your job, then that's what you should be doing. 
don't stay in shul, even though you want to ask the rabbi a question. He said such a nice Dvar Torah during the break in between Mincha and Myriv, and you want to ask him questions about it. You want to talk to this guy, talk to that guy. No, no, no. It's not the right time. Go home. Be with your family. Start your, your Haggadah right away. But it also tells you what is the day we're supposed to be focused on. It's not focused on you. It's focused on the children. Because the mitzvah is v'higadet to labincha bayom ahulemer. And you shall tell it over to your children. And of course, your children, your grandchildren, or the next generation, whoever the next generation in your family is. That's the mitzvah. Is to be telling over from the previous generation because you're creating this link that your child can say, my father and his father, and all the way back to Egypt, they were in Egypt, and this is what happened to them. That's the story we're telling our children on this day. And that's the most important thing. That's where the word Haggadah, we have a Haggadah Shal Pesach, the word Haggadah comes from the word Lahagid, to tell over. So that's the first idea of why it's called a Haggadah, by the way. There's another word, why it's called Haggadah. There's in Aramaic, something called Divrei Agada. Shemoshchin Es Halev. Divrei Agada means basically stories. And they're called Divrei Agada Shemoshchin Es Halev, that entice the heart. When you tell over something with stories, I can't tell you, by the way, how many times I've had this experience. You guys know. You guys are at my class a lot. Okay? So you guys know me in my classes. A lot of times I'll, I'll finish a class and I'll be like, should have told more stories. Should have told more stories. Right? I've never heard anybody complain to me, by the way. I've never gotten an email saying, actually, maybe I have. <laughs> Someone's, you know, we're Jewish people. Someone's always going to complain about something. Rabbi, you tell too many stories. Can you get more to the point? I actually, now I, now I recall, <laughs> I did get that complaint a couple times, but not for most of you. Most of you, you're like, you want to hear stories. Stories have the ability to pull in the heart. Stories have create an emotional connection. The Night of the Seder is not just about creating an intellectual reality. It's about creating an emotional connection. I feel connected to this chain of Jewish people that goes back all the way to the story of the Exodus. And by the way, that's why in terms of the Divrei Torah, now obviously if, if you have children who are very, very intellectual and they're very old, and you know, if, if, if all your kids are 17, 20, 22, 24, 31, and there's no grandchildren, then you might want to say some more intellectual Divrei Torah. You know, why does it use the language this? And you find another Gemara who uses this language, the Ramam says this. You want, maybe if that's, you're the age of your people, but if you've got little kids, the mitzvah is in the simplicity. You know, we just lost Rav Chaim Kanievsky. He's at Sal, Zecher Tzadik, Karsh Levracha, right? He, he was the leader of the generation. He was the, 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 the God all dark, right? I think I told you guys, uh, my, my kids were asking me, how do you, how do, who's going to be the next God all dark? How, how do you get that job? So I told them, I said, you got to go to www.gadolhadarapplications.com. You fill out an application. You say why you believe you should be the God all dark. And you hit submit, and as soon as you hit submit, they reject you because if you think you should be the God Al-Adar, then you're not the God Al-Adar. If you think you should be the greatest leader of the generation, you're not the right person for being the greatest leader of the generation. Okay? So, they were at, we were talking about, you know, Rav Chaim Kanievsky, and there's so many videos coming out right now of Rav Chaim Kanievsky, and the amazing thing is the simplicity. The simplicity. I saw a video this morning. Someone comes to him, he says, he brings this, this is over here, that Rashi says... That when you're dating a woman, you should look into her brothers. What are you supposed to be looking at in the brothers? This is they should be normal. It's <laughs> just such a great answer. Such a great answer. They should be normal. Isn't that amazing? I, I, you got to love the simplicity 
of Rav Chaim Kanievsky, the greatest, you know, Torah scholar of the generation, who knows Kala Torah Kula cold. He knows the entire Torah. Some of I'm looking at the brothers. Rashi says you're supposed to look at the brothers of a girl that you're thinking about dating. What should I be looking at? That they should be normal. <laughs> he actually has a great sense of humor too, because this guy says, starts, starts saying to him, "What if, what if, what if she has two brothers? One is normal, one is not normal." <laughs> So he basically says you should only marry the normal half. You know, like, and then at the end, this guy finally says, at the end, this bakar says, Can you give me a blessing? So Rav Chaim Kadiyamsi says, Baruch Shepatrani. Like, thank God, this is the bracha that you normally say when, you're, when, when your son turns bar mitzvah. You say, Thank God, I don't got to deal with this kid anymore. He's now on his own. He's got his own account now. So this guy's hocking Rav Chaim Kadiyamsi. He's a good old dog. You're hocking him. What if they have one normal brother, one not normal brother? Should I marry the half that's normal? So finally, he says, what bracha? He says, give me a bracha. He says, Baruch Shepatrani. Thank God you're finally leaving me alone so I can go back to my learning. He said it in a funny way. But, but the point is, it's the simplicity. We went, we had a group of men. We went to go meet Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky here. In our, and, and we went to go to Lakewood. But we flew into Philly. And we first met with Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, who's, again, one of the greatest, if not the greatest American gadol right now, the American great rabbi. We met with Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, and from there we went to Lakewood. You meet Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky. He's just simple. He says over simple, nice ideas, beautiful. He's caring about everybody. He's asking all of our dads. He's probably, you know, 30, 40 years, 50 years older than them. And he's asked them, can you get them a drink? You know what I'm saying? Like, he's so kind. He's so, just so nice. So, and, and he says over Dvar Torahs, he's not, he's not looking to show you his brilliance by wrapping you around with 14 different ideas and how they disagree and agree, da, 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 boom, which he clearly could do. He says over an idea that you can understand, that you can appreciate, and you can go home with. So when it comes to the, 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 the story of the Haggadah, right, when it comes to the, if you have little children, don't start getting into all kinds of drushas, all kinds of deep expositions and the Gemara, the this and the that. Stay simple. Keep it entertaining and edu- edu- educating your children. And you're going to do that by keeping it simple. If you start telling all kinds of deep divrei Torah, they're not interested. Divrei agada shemoshkem asalev. You have to tell over stories that pull the heart. So that's why we got to keep it. The Seder has got to be an experience that is really focused on the younger people and engaging them and in telling them the stories and if a Dvar Torah that's this very deep and you take out this word from this Gemara and that word from this, it, it doesn't work for them, then don't use it. Now's not the time. You know, our family in general, right? We have, we have a large Seder. This going, we have a large Seder. Baruch Hashem, I grew up in a family of 10. My mother is on the Zoom I see over here. Ima, thank you very much for being here. I grew up in a family of 10, and there's a lot of kids, and everyone wants to stay over Dvar Torahs. So what do we do? You, you, you put a number. You say everyone gets to stay over three or four Dvar Torahs, whatever it is, and the rest... All Yom Tov long. We have a ton of Yom Tov meals. We have meals the second day of Yom Tov. We have meals the last day of Yom Tov. Say your Dibre Torah then. We want to hear them. We just can't hear them all at the same time. Okay. Now let's start with the Haggadah. The Haggadah is made up of, of 15 different steps. Somebody can lay down a little bit of a track. Kadesh, Okay. Okay. <laughs> Get a little rap going over here. So we've got the 15 steps. Why are there 15 steps in the Haggadah? So 15 always represents the concept of building up to holiness. It always represents going from 7, which represents 
nature to eight, which represents lamalamenateva, above nature. And the idea is that through the experience of something that's 15, you go from a natural state to a supernatural state. Of course, our desire is that through the Haggadah, we should go from being simple people to being the most lofty and divine people. There are 15 steps leading up into the Beis HaMikdash, because you were going from simple everyday areas into a sublime experience. You were going from 7 to 8. 7 plus 8 equals 15. There was 15 steps leading up to the Beis HaMikdash. There are 15 different forms of praise of God in Yishtabach. In Yishtabach Shem Chalad Malkeinu, which we say in our prayers every day, we say, For for you, it is fitting and it is appropriate, Hashem, our God and the God of our fathers, Shir Ushvacha, song and praise, Halel v'zimra. Um These are different words. I'd have to get the exact article to give you the exact translation, but it basically, it's 15 different forms of praise of God. Again, Shir, Ushvacha, Halel, Vizimra, Oz, Umemshala, Netzach, Gedula, Ugevura, Tihila, Vesiferes, Kedusha, Umalchus, Brachos, Vehodaos. Fifteen different forms of praise. How is that fifteen? We love to praise ourselves. When you focus on praising others, when you focus on lifting up others, you go from being a regular human being, a seven, who just wants all the praise for himself, to being an eight, to going Lamalam and Ateva, that's the journey of becoming an otherworldly kind of person. The person who's so focused on others and only wants to give praise and, and, and recognition to God and to others. There's 15 songs of Shir Lamalos. King David wrote 15 songs of Shir Lamalos. And the first one is chapter 120 in Psalms, which starts off Shir Hamalos, El Hashem Batsarasali Karasi Bayaneni. A song of a sense, in my distress I called out to the Lord and He answered me. And the last one is 134. A song of a sense, behold, bless Hashem, all the servants of Hashem who stand in the house of Hashem at night, even when it's dark, even when it's difficult. They're, they're still standing and blessing. So you think about the, the process of the 15 steps. You start off to calling out to God in distress, to being the one who stands in the house of the Lord, singing and praising at night. That's the process of 15. There's 15 steps in the Seder because our goal is to take the Seder and to use it to go from being regular human beings to being sublime individuals through the process of Kadesh, Orchatz, Karpas, Yachatz, Magid, Rachza, Motzi, Matza, Marar, Karach, Shulchan, Arach, Tzafun, Baruch, Halel, Nirza. Okay. So that is the 15 steps. Next, let's start with Kadesh. Kadesh. My daughters and I were walking to Shul on Shabbos. Okay? Uh, I was walking with my 16-year-old daughter and my 13-year-old daughter. And we were talking about the mitzvah of kosher. And we're talking about what mitzvahs do for you. We're talking about how fortunate it is that we're Jews. How fortunate it is that we have Shabbos. How fortunate it is that we have Yom Tovim. How fortunate it is that we have a Pesach and a Hanukkah and a Purim. So we were just talking about how amazing it is to be a Jew. We were just coming off, it was right after Purim. We were just talking about how amazing it is to be a Jew. And we were talking about the, the various benefits of the, of the different mitzvahs. So we started talking about the mitzvah of kosher. Now obviously, on a spiritual perspective, there are benefits to eating kosher. Right? So God tells you that when you eat kosher, which by the way is this week's Torah portion, Parsha Shemini, when you keep kosher, if you don't keep kosher, it stops up 
your spiritual arteries. So just like if you have too much cholesterol, then you get buildup and plaque in your physical arteries. So too, when a person eats non-kosher foods, it stops up, it blocks up their spiritual arteries. Okay, so that's the idea of kosher. It says, if you eat them, you will become unholy through eating unkosher items. The Gemara says, don't read it as you will become unholy. Rather, you will get stopped up with them. You will get clogged up. There's a spiritual shefa, there's a spiritual flow between you and God. And when you eat non-kosher foods, it just keeps filling up fatty deposits all around the inside of that artery. And it becomes harder and harder for you to feel God's presence in your life. Now, we were talking, though, about what physical benefit. There's so many physical benefits that you see in the Torah and the mitzvot. For example, Shabbos. Shabbos, you feel an incredible physical benefit, right? There's the stress reduction for a, a Shomer Shabbos Jew. It's got to be amazing, right? I mean, it's really got to... We should really just be going, and, and, and instead of prescribing so many anxiety and depression pills, starting prescribing people keep Shabbos. You know, like, imagine you're a doctor. This guy comes to you, I'm so stressed out all the time. My wife, my kid, da, 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 my job is never ending. The doctor scribbles something on the pad. And hands it to you. And of course, whenever the, the doctor scribbles anything on the pad, you can't really read it. Because who can read a doctor's handwriting? You say, doctor, what does it say? And he says, it says keep Shabbos. You'll see your anxiety your, and, your, and, your, and your anxiousness will go down. It would. Shabbos is amazing. So many mitzvahs are amazing. But we're talking about, can, can you see any physical benefit in keeping kosher? Besides, again, there's spiritual benefits, no doubt about it. But we're talking about, what is, a, what is a physical benefit in keeping kosher? I have a little confession to make. For me, it's not always easy to keep kosher. Now, Baruch Hashem, I do keep kosher. But one of the most difficult times for me to keep kosher is when I go snowboarding. Because it's, a bit, it's freezing cold outside. I just was in Utah, in Snowbird, Utah. And it was freezing, and it was windy. It was a tough day. The, the weather was not... It was a gritty day. There was snow coming down everywhere. Wind it was cold. You come into the lodge at the bottom of the mountain, at the top of the mountain, and you've been snowboarding for a whole you know, morning, four hours. You know, it's so funny. This is really where I get to be one of those guys. I'm not the spring chicken I used to be. I mean, I remember when I was, when I was an 18-year-old snowboarder, you know, tearing up the mountains, no problem. At this point, after, an afternoon, after a morning, I need breaks while I'm going down the mountain. I need, like, just, okay, okay, let's stop. Take a 30-second break. Just look at the beautiful scenery. Keep going. Okay, stop. Go. Stop. Go. My, my knees, my quads, you know, I need, to be, I need to work out more. But Lebaisa, snowboarding, it's demanding. So you finally, you stagger into the lodge after three hours, four hours of tearing up the mountain. Your quads are on fire. It's freezing cold. And you walk in and there are all the people eating hearty meals big, thick stews and sandwiches filled with steaming meat. <laughs> Just like, oh, that's what I want to eat, not kosher. You know what I'm saying? That's the worst of the worst, you know? And you, cut, you go, you sit down at your table and you pull out your Gatorade and your, 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 and your, uh, your sandwich of peanut butter and, and, and marshmallow fluff or peanut butter and jelly or your tuna fish sandwich that you was wearing in your snowboard pants pocket and is now compressed down, right? Your whole sandwich is now compressed down to the size of a golf ball. You know what I'm saying? And you've <laughs> you got to sit there. They're sitting there eating amazing meals. It's not easy. It's not easy to keep kosher. 
But what's the benefit of keeping kosher? Again, besides the spiritual benefits of knowing that uh, that I'm, I'm not clogging up my my artery, my, my spiritual arteries. I think the other benefit is this gives me a very clear sense of I know who I am and I'm not them, which means it reminds me that I'm part of a very very special club. I'm not like everybody around me. I have kedusha in my life. I have holiness in my life. The word kedusha means separated. I'm separated from these people. Their lives are their lives, and my life is my life, and it's very, very different. And I'm incredibly happy and proud about that because I have a, I have a relationship with God, and there are all kinds of rules. Same way, if you're part of a motorcycle gang, you know what I'm saying? You can't be seen out in public without wearing your leather cut or whatever it is. So too, like, I know who I am. I'm part of the Jewish people. And yet we, all, we eat smashed up tuna fish sandwiches or peanut butter and jelly sandwiches while everyone else is having good meals. But what do I get in return? I get to be part of this amazing club that I'm so proud of being part of. And when I keep kosher, that reminds me of that. Kadesh. We start off our meal saying, this is not Thanksgiving dinner. This is not Thanksgiving dinner. Our meal starts off with Kedusha, with holiness. We are separated. We are separated. Our meal is separated. Our meal is holy. Our Shabbos meal is holy. When we make Kedusha before a meal, we're saying, this is not just a bunch of people sitting down for a big meal. This is a holy endeavor. And when you recognize it as such by starting it off with Kedusha, you give it incredible power. You're part of something special. This is not just a festive meal. This is Leila Demay Menusa. This is the night that we fill with telling over the story of our exodus, of the beginning of our people, and giving incredible thanks to the good Lord above for giving to us. It's not a regular meal. Kadosh, it's separated, it's different. There's them, and there's us. And I'm not saying anything bad about them, but oh, am I glad that I'm part of us. Yes, there are all kinds of rules, things we can eat, things that we can't eat, things we do, things we can't do. But our meals are different. Our meals are elevated. They're separated. It's not just a bunch of chowing down because I'm hungry and the food is good. This is a spiritual meal. I want to set the tone for a spiritual meal right in the beginning, which is why Kiddush always comes at the beginning of the meal. I'm setting the tone for the whole meal. This will be a holy meal. This will be a separated meal. This will be an elevated meal. So that's the proclamation we're making at the beginning of the, the Seder. It's not just like, let's go through this as fast as possible and get to the food, because it's, it's not just about the food. It's really not. It's about the holiness and the beauty of the evening. And I'm starting off with Kiddush saying... This is a special, elevated experience of me having communion, me having connection with God through a special meal. Orchats. Orchats is washing of your hands. Don't you think it makes sense that you should wash your hands before Kadesh? If Kadesh is all about spirituality, if Kadesh is all about holiness, don't you think you should wash your hands first? Don't you think that would make more sense than just to go straight into washing your hands after you had Kedusha? It makes no sense. Wash your, again, if washing is to wash away uncleanliness, why are we doing it in that order? 
Now, of course, the whole year there's a reason for this. But when we have to understand on Pesach, there's a different idea over here as well. Pesach is a night that Hashem skipped over the houses of the Jewish people. The word Pesach means to skip over. Pesach is a night that we can all skip over as well. Pesach is a night where we have an incredible ability to be able to skip over levels. So even though I'm not necessarily 100% there yet, tonight is the night that I can get there. If I have to wait until I cleanse myself of every mitzvah, of every sin, in order to be able to properly experience Pesach, I'm in trouble. But if I can say, I'm going to attack the Kaddish first. Later I'll get towards moving away whatever mistakes I have. Right? So basically, Kaddish is the, the first step of accepting the holiness and bringing the holiness into you. And then later on, I'll, I'll remove some of the unholiness. But that's the right order. Normally we say, Sor me rava se tov. Move away from evil and do good. That's a two-step process. Sor me ra, move away from bad. Ba tov and do good. But on Pesach, we could flip the script. Just do good. Jump into the holiness. Jump into the divinity. And afterwards, you'll clean up whatever needs cleaning up. Karpas. Why do we do karpas? This, the Gemara tells us the reason why we do karpas, where we dip a vegetable in salt water. I know, everyone says, we dip the vegetable in salt water to remember the tears. That's not what the Gemara says, by the way. The Gemara says, why do we do karpas? So that we should... Arouse the curiosity of the children. So the children should ask. Children are amazed by, by pretty much everything. You could spend an entire afternoon, they could spend an entire afternoon blowing the little white things off of the daffodils. Yeah, a guest came to the house. Wow, this guy was in Switzerland. Wow, this guy went to India. Amazing. We could stare at a rock formation for half of an afternoon. We could sit there and just get down on the floor and watch ants dismantling a piece of cake. You know, like outside a piece of cake falls on the pavement and the ants are coming, with a stream of ants coming and attacking. A kid could sit there and watch that for, for 45 minutes, at least, at least in a pre-Netflix world. <laughs> we get older, we get used to life, we get a bit jaded, and we lose the curiosity of the children. But the truth is that real wisdom comes from never stopping the asking process. Never stopping the learning process. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avot says, Ezu Chachamalo made me call Adam. Who is the wise person? He who learns from every person. And at the face value, you say, okay, it means that you recognize that everybody has something of value to, to give to you. I remember sitting on a flight one time next to a guy who was a farmer. We had a fascinating conversation about the different strata of the soil. This guy knows so much more than me about soil. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. But on a deeper level, when it says that who is wise, the person who learns from everybody, if you learn from everybody, you're learning all the time. No matter where you are, no matter who you meet, no matter who you speak to, you're always learning. So there's A, the process that you have many, many teachers, and you're willing to learn from everybody the things that they know that they know better than you. But more importantly, it means that you're always learning. It means that you're always asking. It means that you're always curious. It means that you never get to a point where you kind of figured it out. The Seder is done in a question and answer format. You have the four questions. We're doing things to constantly arouse the curiosity of the children. Because real wisdom comes from asking and asking and asking more. The minute you stop asking questions is when you stop learning. You know, it's fascinating. I was in China one time. And you talk to people. 
And I was probably there in 2008. It's going back a long time ago. Now, the regime is much, much more uh, oppressive. The CCP, the China Communist Party, is much, much more oppressive today. But back in the day, there was, there was definitely much more freedom. And I remember you would, you would meet with people, and they have businesses. Some of them are successful. They're making money. And you start talking to them, and they'll talk to you about anything. But the minute you start asking questions, like, you say, hey, you know, tell me, what, what does it feel like to live in a communist country? They just go blink, like, um, sorry, me not understand. You know, like, I'm like, what does it feel like to live in a communist country where you can't do whatever you want? He's like, so sorry, I don't understand. Of course, it took me, the idiot, a while to understand. They're just not going to answer the questions. And anybody who I would talk to, as soon as you ask them or start wondering about what life, do you know what life is like outside of China and so on and so forth, as soon as you start bringing up questions like this, they just... They shut down like a clam. They don't have any freedom. They're slaves. They're all slaves. A billion and a half slaves to the CCP. Slaves to the China, Chinese, Chinese Communist Party because they're not allowed to ask questions. They're allowed to make money. They're allowed to have a business. They're allowed to have a home. They have a lot of high-tech stuff going on over there. I mean, when I was in China, I saw more beautiful cars in, in, in a week in China than I see in Michigan all year round. Super expensive cars, beautiful five-star hotels. I mean, amazing. It's beautiful. Very highly developed. Very high-tech. Just no questions. You can never ask, what if we wanted to be different? Why are we still following this, this government that takes away our freedom and so on and so, and, and, and so, and so forth? So, it's, it's, a, it's so interesting that in Judaism, the night of Pesach is the night of faith. We call it Leila de Mahem Nusa. It's the night of faith. It's the night we're supposed to teach and transmit faith to our children. And yet, it's the night that we ask the most questions. Judaism does not shy away from questions. Many religions do. I remember one time this Christian guy was trying to debate me. And I, and I got him into it. I really didn't have time for him. He was, he was bothering me. I was sitting down. I was trying to work on my laptop in a public lounge. And he just he wouldn't leave me alone. And... Finally, I just said to him, you know, I basically said to him, I said, what do I get if I, okay, so if I, if I convert to Christianity, what do I get? And he's like, oh, you get amazing, everlasting bliss. I said, what does that look like? He's like, the roads are paved with gold and everyone drives a, a Rolls Royce and you could eat buffets that are endless without any, without gaining any weight and you have, everyone has a beautiful home. I said, dude, what goes to heaven, your body or your soul? And he thinks he's like, your soul. I'm like, you're right, because your body goes in the ground. Do you think your soul cares about whether the roads are paved with gold? Do you think your soul can drive a Rolls Royce? Like, with what hands? You know what I'm saying? With what hands can you drive your Rolls Royce over there? So the bottom line is, I, I just, I, I shut him down. His wife was trying to, like, trying to, sh- she, his wife was there, and his wife realized, I just put them in a hole. It's time to just leave the conversation, but he couldn't do it. So finally he blurts out, He's like, you know what? Those who have faith don't ask questions, and those who ask questions don't have faith. I said, wow. You're right. I've got questions, and therefore I don't have your faith. But in my faith, in my faith, I didn't say this to him because I, I had no interest in talking to him. But in my faith, the night of faith is the night of questions. The Layl of the Bahim Nusa, the, the night of faith where we teach faith to our children, is the night of questions. Where we encourage questions. We do things so that children should ask questions. We want questions to be asked, and we want answers to be given, and there are going to be questions that are going to be asked that we don't have an answer for. We have a teku. And that's okay also. We don't have to have the answers to every single question. 
but we're going to shy away from questions because we don't have the answer to some? No, we encourage questions. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz says another great idea. He says, why do we encourage, why do we force the, the, the Haggadah to go in a question and answer format? He says, when you get somebody to ask a question, then they're invested in finding out the answer. If I'm just sitting here lecturing, giving a speech, so some people just, ah, whatever, they, they, they tune out. But if you ask me a question, you're kind of invested that it shouldn't have an answer, so your question should stand. So you're listening very carefully to the answer, seeing if any holds my answer, right? You want to see. Or even if you got a good answer, you love the good answer because you had a question. You were invested in the process. By setting up the Haggadah that it should be a question and answer format, the kids are invested in the process. The Amorayim used to do something fascinating. There's a Gemara, a very, very, very frequent Gemara. It's found like probably, I don't know, seven, eight times in the Babylonian Talmud. The Gemara is also found in Yuma 86b. The Amor Avuna, for Avuna said, Kivan Avar Adam Avera Once a person does an Avera and then repeats it again, Hutrilo, it becomes permitted to him. The Gemara says, What? You do an Avera twice, it becomes permitted to you? Can I get two ham sandwiches, please? So the Gemara says, Hutrilo Sakodaita, you think it's really permitted to you? No, 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 Either, rather, it begins to feel like it's permitted. Right? So what he's saying is, is that once you do a sin twice, you start to feel like it's permitted. So why did he say it in the first place? Why didn't he just say it? Once you do an Avera twice, it starts to feel like it's permitted. And the answer is because he wanted people to be invested. So he said, he, he said a crazy statement. He said, once you do an Avera twice, it's permitted. And we're like, what are you talking about? They're all asking? Then he explains, if you repeat Averas, they become easier for you to do, and that's a very bad thing. You don't want to do that. So if you didn't Avera once, make sure you only keep it to one mistake and stop, because you don't want to repeat that mistake again and again and again, because then it will become like totally permitted to you. But he asked it in a format, he threw it out there in a format that people should ask the question, then be invested and be able to hear the answer. And by the way, interestingly enough, Sammy the Bull Gravano, a famous enforcer for the, one of the Gambino, the Colombo crime family, he wrote a book. And he wrote exactly that what the Gemara says. He says, the first killing is very difficult, but after that it just becomes pretty easy. Anyway, the bottom line is, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to ask a lot of questions. We're going to be supremely happy and joyous at our seders. We're going to start off with 15 steps at our seders to recognize that we are going from being seven regular teva to being lamalam and teva above nature. We're going to use the experience of the Pesach seder to get above all bounds and become supreme human beings. We're going to have Kaddish at the beginning of our meal saying, we are different. I don't eat the same foods as everybody else in the ski lodge because I'm part of a different club. And that club gives me great joy in knowing that I'm part of this people, this part of this nation, part of this divine mission. And that's why I start my meal with Kiddush saying, this meal is separated. This is not a Thanksgiving dinner. This is not a family sitting down together for a July 4th barbecue. This is a spiritual, holy, divine experience with a very important and clear mission of the God of telling to your children on that day saying, this is why God took me out of Egypt. This is why God took you out of Egypt. This is your mission in the world. This is my mission in the world. And then we're going to wash, even though we already just said Kiddush, because we're going to recognize that on the night of Pesach we can jump many, many levels, even though we haven't cleansed ourselves entirely, we can achieve great spiritual heights if we commit to doing so at the night of the Seder. It's the night of jumping. It's the night where we can take on Kedusha, even if we haven't washed off every sin just yet. And the Karpas will remind us of all the questions we want to ask, and how the whole process of Judaism is all through questioning, 
Our faith does not come by not asking questions. Our faith comes by asking questions and learning the answers and struggling with them. And that's the beauty and joy of being a Jew and being a free person who can ask and can be part of the dialogue. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.